0: Some account of the life of John Wycliffe, D.D., Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The state of England during the latter part of the 14th century presents many causes for painful reflection luxury and pride characterized the higher classes while the lower orders were involved in misery and vice abounded among all ranks contemporary historians ascribe much of this dissoluteness of morals to the civil wars of preceding reigns whereby the land was desolated and the bonds of society relaxed the internal peace of the country it is true had become more settled but many causes united to prevent moral improvement a long course of foreign victory inflated the national pride the wealth that accrued to individuals from successful welfare with the habits acquired thereby promoted luxury and dissipation among the higher ranks further stimulated by the introduction of new articles of expense through an increasing commerce meanwhile the people in general were exhausted by calls for pecuniary supplies and personal aid to carry on foreign hostilities and the feuds and oppressions of powerful barons with the constant plundering of bands of robbers for many years suffered to exist with impunity caused much misery among the lower orders whose sufferings led to the insurrections in the early part of the reign of richard the Second. such in reality was the state of england in the days of wycliffe as depicted by the analysts who lived near his time although general historians engrossed by military details and political events dwell but slightly upon these painful circumstances another cause tended much to produce and to perpetuate an unhappy state of society for the soul to be without knowledge is not good and those were days of ignorance and mental darkness some symptoms of a revival of learning appeared but as yet little progress had been made in science the subtleties of the schools retarded all advances in useful knowledge while the improvement in fine arts were made subservient to luxury rather than beneficial to the general character of the age but ignorance as to spiritual truth was the greatest and most serious evil the main object of those who called themselves ministers of christ was to enslave the minds and to plunder the property of the people committed to their charge they kept from them the truths of the gospel and sought to be reverenced as beings superior to their fellow-men while they indulged every debasing appetite the corrupt and depraved state of the popedom at that period is admitted by every historian it is described as literally a hell upon earth to the papal power every ecclesiastic in europe was compelled to look for authority and direction to exercise the duties of his charge and we may easily imagine what was the general character of those to whom the popes and their counsellors delegated the exercise of that paramount authority they had assumed ignorance as to scriptural truth was of course considered by such priests as the best safeguard of their authority but though the church of rome has maintained that ignorance is the mother of devotion we know that such a source will yield only blind superstitious feelings strongly opposed to true religion the instruction given to the lower classes at that period tended to harden them in ignorance and vice they committed their spiritual concerns entirely to the priesthood or if the conscience refused to be silenced in this matter it was diverted to the practice of austerities and will-worship equally destructive to the soul the few virtues of that age were not christian virtues they were founded on the romantic notions of chivalry faint glimmerings of light which only served to make the surrounding darkness more visible at best they were deceptive leading the pilgrim from the way to real peace only a small number of persons had been preserved from the corruptions of the papacy but they even in the darkest times had exercised some influence upon europe though subjected to the most bitter persecution a few individuals also who were distinguished for mental powers as grossest and Bradwardine, had borne testimony in england against the usurpations and crimes of the papacy while others had begun to perceive that the conduct of the priesthood when examined by the rule of scripture was altogether anti-christian the circumstances already noticed should be kept in mind when we enter upon the history of wycliffe the demoralized state of the nation made it ripe for sufferings in israel of old when luxury and wickedness abounded prophets were sent to warn the people of approaching judgments and to point out the way of salvation so in england wycliffe and others were raised up to bear faithful testimony to the truth and to denounce what must be the end of the practices which then prevailed when we recollect the state of England, and the crying evils which called for exposure and reproof, we shall be satisfied that Wickliffe was not an ambitious or a revolutionary spirit, as some have described him, but rather a prophet as Jeremiah, weeping day and night for the slain of the daughter of his people, hearing the voice of the Lord, shall I not visit for these things, shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? one deeply impressed by such feelings could not be indifferent to the sacred office nor should he be judged by estimates of what appear to be the duties of a minister of the gospel at the present period we may consider england at that period as in many respects resembling judah in the days of the son of hilkiah like him wycliffe was called from the priesthood of the land to bear testimony as a prophet before kings and rulers and like him was unavoidably implicated in the political events of the times and though visitations were not sent upon england to the same extent as those inflicted upon judah yet the painful scenes exhibited in the civil wars of the succeeding century show that famine and the sword came upon that land and that the people were punished for the fruit of their doings national crimes will bring down national judgments warnings are sent previously to desolations but when the voice of the lord speaking by his faithful ministers is disregarded execution will assuredly follow it was so in the period referred to the wickedness and profligacy of england in the fourteenth century were extreme the awful and certain consequences were plainly exhibited by wycliffe and his associates many there is good reason to believe sought the things which concerned their peace but the nation at large persisted in evil courses and persecuted to death the witnesses of the truth the calamities which followed have been but feebly depicted in the pages of history the particulars of individual suffering are forgotten amidst details of martial enterprise may england not forget the innumerable mercies she has since then received may the warnings of faithful ministers of christ not again be despised and may our national sins never again arise to such a height as to bring national judgments upon our country john wycliffe was born about the year thirteen twenty four at a village of the same name a few miles from the town of richmond in yorkshire where his ancestors had resided from the time of the conquest the family were respectable and possessed considerable property but continued the advocates of those superstitions which their relative earnestly laboured to remove it is probable that in consequence of the change in his views he was estranged from his own family Under feelings of this nature, he would be led to use the language of one of his tracts, in which, speaking of the errors into which worldly-minded parents often fall, he says, With much travail and cost they get great riches and estates and benefices for their children, and often to their greater damnation, but they incline not to get for their children the goods of grace and virtuous life. Nor will they suffer them to retain these goods, as they are freely proffered to them of God, but hinder it as much as they may, saying, if a child yield himself to meekness and poverty, and flee covetousness and pride from a dread of sin, and to please God, that he shall never become a man, never cost them a penny, and they curse him because he liveth well, and will teach other men the will of God to save their souls. For by so doing the child getteth many enemies to his elders, and they say that he slandereth all their noble kindred, who were ever held to be true men and worshipful in those days next to the danger and reproach of being a heretic and nearly as great was the being accounted a friend or relative of one suspected of heresy all the memorial which remains of the history of wycliffe's youth is that his parents designed their son for the church and his mind was early directed to the requisite studies He was entered at Queen's College, Oxford, an institution then recently founded, from whence he soon removed to Merton College, the most distinguished in the university at that period, when the number of scholars had recently been estimated to amount to thirty thousand. Wycliffe's attention appears rather to have been directed to the studies suitable for his profession than to general literature. As Fuller observes, The fruitful soil of his natural abilities he industriously improved by acquired learning. He was not only skilled in the fashionable arts of that age, and in that obtruse, crabbed divinity, all whose fruit is thorns, but he was also well versed in the scriptures, a rare accomplishment in those days. Dr. James enumerates various writers by whom he considers Wycliffe to have been grounded in the truth. He doubtless learned much from the fathers and was considerably indebted to grostess and bradwardin but his writings show that his religious principles were mainly derived from the bible his perusal of the scriptures and the fathers rendered him dissatisfied with the scholastic divinity of that age while the knowledge of canon and civil law then requisite for a divine enabled him to discern many of the errors of popery his writings also show him to have been well acquainted with the laws of his own country the forefathers of the latin church jerome ambrose augustine and gregory are continually quoted by him so as to show his intimate acquaintance with their writings augustine in particular he seems to have valued next to the scriptures it will not be forgotten that luther derived much instruction from the writings of that father the acknowledged ability of wycliffe as a scholar led his adversaries to accuse him of evil designs rather than of ignorance while his friends gave him the title of the Evangelic doctor Even Knighton states that he was second to none in philosophy. Wycliffe's mind must have received deep impressions from an awful visitation of Providence, which occurred in the middle of the fourteenth century. Europe was shaken by a succession of earthquakes, shortly after it was ravished by a pestilence, the effects of which were more rapid and extensive than at this day we can easily conceive more than half the people of this and other lands were swept away the alarmed survivors reckoned the mortality far higher that wycliffe was deeply impressed by this awful event appears by his frequent references thereto when he is sounding an alarm to a careless and profane generation under a strong feeling that the end of the world approached he wrote his first publication a small treatise entitled the last age of the church in which he describes the corruptions which then pervaded the whole ecclesiastical state as the main cause of that chastisement which europe had so lately felt early and deep impressions of this nature evidently tended much to strengthen and to prepare the reformer for the arduous course he was shortly called to pursue that his mind had been led to look to the only true ground of support, is evident from a passage in this tract, wherein he speaks of Christ Jesus as, Having entered into holy things, that is, into holy church, by holy living and holy teaching, and with his blood he delivered man's nature, as Zechariah writeth in his ninth chapter, Thou verily with the blood of witness, or of thy testament, hast led out from the pit them that were bound, so, when we were sinful and the children of wrath, God's Son came out of heaven, and praying His Father for His enemies, He died for us. Then, much rather, shall we be saved. Now we are made righteous through His blood. Thus we find Wycliffe, in his thirty-second year, respected for his scholastic acquirements, deeply impressed with the importance of divine truth, awakened to a sense of the divine judgments, enabled already to break through the bands of superstition, and in possession of that hope which alone can afford refuge for a guilty sinner we shall now see how these preparations fitted him for the contest and led him to the encounter in which he was called to engage the first circumstance which summoned wycliffe to this conflict was a controversy with the mendicant friars some of them had settled at oxford in 1221, where they attracted much notice by their professed freedom from the avarice of the monastic fraternities in general and by their activity as preachers they introduced many of the opinions afterwards adopted by the reformers for a time saying much in opposition to the papal authority and in support of the authority of the bible but their errors and encroaching spirit soon appeared so that grostus bishop of lincoln who for some years had favoured the friars at length deeply censured their conduct their zeal to proselyte youths at the universities to their orders armagh called forth vigorous opposition from fitzraff archbishop of armagh who in a petition to the pope in thirteen fifty seven affirmed that the students of Oxford were reduced on this account to six thousand, not more than a fifth of their former number. In 1366 a parliamentary enactment ordered that none of the orders should receive any youth under the age of eighteen, also that no bull should be procured by the friars against the universities. Similar disputes then prevailed in the University of Paris. The objections alleged against the mendicants, as stated by Wycliffe, may be thus summed up they represented a life inertly contemplative, as preferable to one spent in active attention to Christian duties. They were defective in morals when discharging their office of confessors. While itineranting in the offices they assumed, they persecuted all such as they detected really travelling to sow God's word among the people. To these may be added a full proportion of every error and vice which has been charged on the corrupt clergy of Rome." Nor did Wycliffe merely expose and seek to correct these fruits of error, he showed that they proceeded from the unscriptural nature of the institutions, which evidently were opposed to those precepts of the Bible which they professed to regard. Against these mendicants, Wycliffe wrote several tracts, entitled, Of the Property of Christ, Against Able Beggary, and Of Idleness in Beggary. The vices of the friars led him to consider more fully the vices of the Romish priesthood, The approval which the conduct of Wycliffe in opposing the mendicants received from the university appears from his being chosen warden of Balliol College in 1361. In the same year he was presented by his college to the living of Fillingham in Lincolnshire, which he afterwards exchanged for Ludgershall in Wiltshire. In 1365 he was appointed warden of Canterbury Hall by Simon de Islip. THE FOUNDER, THEN PRIMATE OF ENGLAND. IN THE INSTRUMENT APPOINTING Wickliffe TO THIS OFFICE, ISLIP STATES HIM TO BE A PERSON ON WHOSE FIDELITY, CIRCUMSPECTION, AND INDUSTRY HE CONFIDED, ONE ON WHOM HE HAD FIXED FOR THAT PLACE, FOR THE HONESTY OF HIS LIFE, HIS LAUDABLE CONVERSATION AND KNOWLEDGE OF LETTERS. ISLIP, DYING SHORTLY AFTER, Wycliffe WAS DISPLACED BY LANGHAM, HIS SUCCESSOR, WHO HAD BEEN A MONK, FROM WHOSE DECISION HE APPEALED TO THE POPE. The integrity and courage of Wycliffe are manifest from the boldness with which he continued to oppose the mendicants, both personally and by his writings, during the time his appeal was under consideration. Another circumstance assisted to call Wycliffe into public notice. This was the decision of the English Parliament in 1365 to resist the claim of Pope Urban V, who attempted the revival of an annual payment of a thousand marks, as a tribute or feudal acknowledgment that the kingdoms of England and Ireland... Were held at the pleasure of the popes. His claim was founded upon the surrender of the crown by King John to Pope Innocent the Third. The payment had been discontinued for thirty-three years, and the recent victories of Cressy and Poitiers, with their results, had so far strengthened the power of England that the demand by the pontiff of the arrears with the continuance of the tribute, upon pain of the papal censure, were unanimously rejected by the king and Parliament the reader must recollect that this was not a question bearing only upon the immediate point in dispute the grand subject of papal supremacy was involved therein and the refusal to listen to the mandate of the pope necessarily tended to abridge the general influence of the clergy a measure of this description was almost unknown in the history of europe at that day such claims were not lightly relinquished by the papacy and shortly after this decision of the parliament a monk wrote in defence of the papal usurpations asserting that the sovereignty of england was forfeited by withholding the tribute and that the clergy whether as individuals or as a general body were exempted from all jurisdiction of the civil power a claim which had already excited considerable discussions in the preceding reigns Wycliffe was personally called upon by this writer to prove, if he were able, the fallacy of these opinions, nor should it be forgotten that this work did not proceed from any of the mendicant orders, but from one of those monks who were directly opposed to them. Thus it is evident that Wycliffe's former conduct was rightly estimated to proceed not from one who merely opposed the mendicants, as such, but from one who would oppose the leading errors of the Church of Rome, under whatever guise they might appear. In Wycliffe's reply, wherein he has preserved the arguments of the monk, he styles himself one of the royal chaplains. He combats the assumptions of the Church of Rome, confirming his sentiments by giving the substance of several speeches delivered by certain of the lay nobility in the recent debate relative to the claims of the pontiff. We need not enter into the contents of this tract further than to quote the following declaration attributed to one of the speakers that christ is the supreme lord while the pope is a man and liable to mortal sin and who while in mortal sin according to divines is unfitted for dominion the extent to which such a principle might be applied is evident from the well-known wicked lives of the pontiffs which had led to the monstrous assertion of romish divines that the pope though guilty of the most heinous sins still was to be obeyed and respected in his mandates even those which concerned religion The treatise concludes with a view of the future taken by Wycliffe, which has long since been fulfilled. If I mistake not, the day will come in which all exactions shall cease, before the Pope will prove such a condition to be reasonable and honest. Who now in England ventures to assert that the temporal authority of the Pope is supreme, or that his ecclesiastics are exempted from the laws of God and their country? Yet such doctrines were openly maintained in those ages, and still are asserted in some parts of Europe the parliament of thirteen sixty six also directed regulations to be observed by which the power and influence of the mendicants were limited in the part taken by the university of oxford during these proceedings wycliffe doubtless was concerned and the attention given to his arguments on these subjects which then so deeply agitated the public mind must have brought his opinions concerning these scriptures and other points more immediately connected with divine truths into general notice thus attention was called to those doctrines which he now began publicly to advocate one circumstance which promoted this opposition to the papal claims was the national animosity then existing between england and france many of the popes being natives of france evinced their partiality for their own country in which they then resided on all occasions All these concurring circumstances led Edward III to pursue a line of conduct which certainly characterizes him as a promoter of the Reformation, at least as to its outward concerns. John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, claims notice as conspicuous among the court and family of the British monarch for the countenance and support he afforded to Wycliffe under his influence an attempt appears to have been made in thirteen seventy one by authority of parliament to exclude ecclesiastics from all offices of state wickliffe in his writings has so fully shown his deep sense of the necessity for the clergy being exclusively devoted to the duties of their spiritual functions that we cannot doubt of his intimate connection with the prince from whom such a proposition originated The views of Wycliffe as to the proper method of discharging the office of minister of the church will appear by the following extract from one of his early pieces entitled A Short Rule of Life. He says, If thou art a priest, and by name a curate, live thou a holy life. Pass other men in holy prayer, holy desire, and holy speaking, in counselling and teaching the truth. Ever keep the commandments of God, and let His gospel and His praises be ever in thy mouth. Ever despise sin that men may be drawn therefrom, and that thy deeds may be so far rightful, that no man shall blame them with reason. Let thy open life be thus a true book, in which the soldier and the layman may learn how to serve God, and keep His commandments. For the example of a good life, if it be open and continued, striketh rude men much more than open preaching with the word alone. And waste not thy goods in great feasts for rich men, but live a frugal life on poor men's alms and goods, have both meat and drink and clothing, but the remnant give truly to the poor, to those who have freely wrought, but who now may not labor from feebleness and sickness, and thus shalt thou be a true priest both to God and to man. These are sentiments which remind us of the early ages of the church, and Wycliffe was not one who set forth precepts for others which he did not practice himself. Similar passages will be found in the following pages nor was he less earnest to enforce due respect for the ministers of religion as will appear from the following extract thy second father is thy spiritual father who has special care of thy soul and thus shalt thou worship reverence him thou shalt love him especially before other men and obey his teaching as far as he teaches god's will and help according to thy power that he have a reasonable sustenance when he doeth well his office and if he fail in his office by giving evil example and in ceasing from teaching god's law thou art bound to have great sorrow on that account and to tell meekly and charitably his default to him between thee and him alone in thirteen seventy the papal court decided against the continuance of wickliffe in the wardenship of canterbury hall it was decreed that the inmates should all be monks notwithstanding the express declarations of the founder and the terms of the royal license to the contrary. The royal sanction to this sentence was obtained two years afterwards. Among the means employed by his opponents, bribery appears to have been the principal. Wycliffe was neither surprised nor troubled by this decision. He does not refer to it in any part of his writings, nor was any imputation cast upon him thereby. In 1373 Wycliffe was admitted to the degree of Doctor of Divinity as this rank was at that time unfrequent and conferred a considerable degree of influence it must have facilitated the diffusion of the doctrines he advocated throughout the kingdom many of his scholastic pieces doubtless were lectures delivered by him as a professor of divinity to which office he was appointed in thirteen seventy two his early english writings also show how the doctrinal views and the religious feelings with which he proceeded in his new office He was skilful in the use of the artificial logic then in vogue, and by accustoming his hearers to enter into logical and metaphysical distinctions, he taught them to exercise their mind upon inquiries, which he gradually directed to more important subjects than those usually introduced into such lectures. Among these early pieces the exposition of the Decalogue, now in the Cotton Library, may be included. As that exposition differs from the one in the present volume, a brief extract or two may be given urging that love to god be shown by keeping his commands Wycliffe says have a remembrance of the goodness of god how he made thee in his own likeness and how jesus christ both god and man died so painful a death upon the cross to buy man's soul out of hell even with his own heart's blood and to bring it to the bliss of heaven he admonishes that the sabbath not only commemorates the work of creation but also the resurrection of christ and the gift of the spirit adding bethink thee heartily of the wonderful kindness of god who was so high and so worshipful in heaven, that he should come down so low and be born of the maiden, and become our brother, to buy us again by his hard passion from our thraldom to Satan. After describing the sufferings of Christ, he adds, All this he did, and suffered of his own kindness, without any sin of himself, that he might deliver us from sin and pain, and bring us to everlasting bliss. Thou shouldst also think constantly how, when he had made thee of naught, thou hadst forsaken him and all his kindness through sin and hadst taken thee to satan and his service world without end had not christ god and man suffered this hard death to save us and thus see the great kindness and all other goodness which god hath shown for thee and thereby learn thy own great unkindness and thus thou shalt see that man is the most fallen of creatures and the unkindest of all creatures that ever god made it should be full sweet and delightful to us to think thus on this great kindness and this great love of jesus christ vaughan observes of this exposition we find wycliffe zealously inculcating the lessons of inspiration on the fall of man and the consequent depravity of human nature on the excellence and perpetual obligation of the moral law on the exclusive dependence of every child of adam on the atonement of christ for the remission of his sins and for victory over temptation and the possession of holiness on the aids of divine grace it appears also that these momentous tenets were very far from being regarded by wycliffe with the coldness of mere speculation the aid which the labours of wycliffe received from the disputes then existing between the popes and the english government has been already noticed these differences were again renewed in thirteen seventy three on the subject of provisors the papal see had been accustomed to grant anticipated vacancies in the english church among its foreign dependents by which ministers were appointed who were neither able nor willing to discharge the duties of their office various legal enactments had been previously made to meet these encroachments and a law was passed whereby the election of bishops was rendered entirely independent of the papal sanction in the year thirteen sixty during the pestilence seven english bishoprics had become vacant all of which were filled by aliens under papal provisions and the result of inquiry in thirteen seventy six showed that a very large number of the english benefices were in the hands of foreigners an embassy was dispatched to the continent in thirteen seventy four to remonstrate with the papal see on this subject wycliffe was one of the delegates bruges was the place appointed for meeting the commissioners of the papal see the proceedings as usual in all matters of a similar nature were protracted by every species of evasion they continued nearly two years while the concessions obtained were few and unsatisfactory wycliffe saw enough during his visit to the continent to satisfy him fully of the anti-christian character of the papacy he returned from this treaty like cranmer and luther from rome more than ever convinced of the necessity of a thorough reformation in ecclesiastical affairs he now styled the pope the antichrist the proud worldly priest of rome the most cursed of clippers and purse-carvers we find strong expressions in his subsequent writings but when we refer to the corruptions of the church of rome and to the treatment wycliffe received from the romish ecclesiastics it may truly be said was there not cause? The public attention was now awakened to the intolerable exactions of the popedom. A parliamentary remonstrance in 1376 states that the taxes paid to the Pope yearly out of England were five times the amount paid to the King, also that the richest prince in Christendom had not the fourth part of the income received by the Pope out of England. These calculations might well call forth the emphatic expression contained in the same document that God had committed his sheep to the Pope to be pastured, and not to be shorn or shaven. In November 1375 Wycliffe was presented by the King to a prebend in the collegiate church of Westbury, and shortly after to the rectory of Lutterworth in Leicestershire, at that time in the royal gift by the minority of Lord de Ferraz the patron he was speedily called to take a still more prominent part in public affairs at that period a severe political struggle existed between the duke of lancaster and the leading ecclesiastics among whom courtney bishop of london and wickham of winchester were most distinguished the particulars need not be detailed it is sufficient to say that the transactions were of a complicated nature it is only to the unbounded influence of the romish priesthood over the consciences of men that we can attribute the popular excitement against the reformer and his friends which the prelates succeeded in raising perhaps it is less easy to explain how the parliament which assembled in thirteen seventy six and thirteen seventy seven should have been opposed both to the encroachments of the papacy and to the administration of the duke of lancaster The clergy were highly displeased at proceedings against some of their number, and at this period, for the first time, we find them adverting to the doctrines of Wycliffe, as calling for official interference. This, doubtless, was intended as an attack both upon the doctrines of the reformer and the power of his patron. In the convocation, which met in February 1377, Wycliffe was cited to appear before his ecclesiastical superiors, to answer certain charges brought against him for holding and publishing erroneous and heretical doctrines a day was appointed for hearing his defence the scene which ensued is thus described by fox from the chronicle of st albans When the day assigned to the said Wickliffe to appear was come, which day was Thursday, the nineteenth of February, John Wickliffe went, accompanied by the Duke of Lancaster, also four friars appointed by the Duke, the better to ensure Wickliffe's safety, and Lord Henry Percy, Lord Marshal of England, Lord Percy going before to make room and way where Wickliffe should come. Thus, Wickliffe, through the providence of God being sufficiently guarded, was coming to the place where the bishop sat by the way they animated and exhorted him not to fear nor shrink a whit at the company of bishops there present who were all unlearned said they in respect of him for so proceed the words of my author whom i follow in this narration neither should he dread the concourse of the people whom they would themselves assist and defend in such sort that he should take no harm With these words, and with the assistance of the nobles, Wycliffe, encouraged in heart, approached the church of St. Paul, where a main press of people was gathered to hear what should be said and done. Such was the throng of the multitude that the lords, for all the pursuance of the High Marshal, scarcely, with great difficulty, could get way through. Insomuch that Courtney, Bishop of London, seeing the stir which the Lord Marshal kept in the church among the people, speaking to the Lord Percy, said, that if he had known before what masteries he would have kept in the church he would have stopped him out from coming there at which words of the bishop the duke disdaining not a little answered the bishop again that he would keep such mastery there though he said nay at last after much wrangling they pierced through and came to our lady's chapel where the dukes and barons were sitting together with the archbishops and bishops before whom john wycliffe stood to know what should be laid unto him to whom first spake the lord percy bidding him to sit down saying that he had many things to answer to and therefore had need of some softer seat but the bishop of london cast eftsons into a fumish chafe with those words said he should not sit there neither was it said he according to law or reason that he who was cited there to appear to answer before his ordinary should sit down during the time of his answer but he should stand Upon these words a fire began to heat and kindle between them, insomuch that they began so to rate and revile one the other, that the whole multitude therewith disquieted began to be set on a hurry. Then the duke, taking the Lord Percy's part with hasty words, began also to take up the bishop, to whom the bishop again, nothing inferior in reproachful checks and rebukes, did render and requite, not only to him as good as he brought, but also did so far excel him, in his railing art of scolding, that, to use the words of mine author, the duke blushed and was ashamed, because he could not overpass the bishop in brawling and railing. He therefore fell to plain threatening, menacing the bishop, that he would bring down the pride not only of him, but also of all the prelacy of England. Speaking moreover unto him, "'Thou,' said he, "'bearest thyself so brag upon thy parents, which shall not be able to help thee. "'They shall have enough to do to help themselves.' his parents were the earl and countess of devonshire to whom the bishop again answered that to be bold to tell truth his confidence was not in his parents nor in any man else but only in god in whom he trusted then the duke softly whispering in the ear of him next to him said that he would rather pluck the bishop by the hair of his head out of the church than he would take this at his hand this was not spoken so secretly but that the londoners overheard him whereupon being set in rage they cried out saying that they would not suffer their bishop so contemptuously to be abused but rather they would lose their lives than that he should be so drawn out by the hair thus the council being broken with scolding and brawling for that day was dissolved before nine of the clock some proceedings having been taken by the duke and lord percy which affected the liberties of the citizens a tumult ensued on the day following information was brought to the duke at the savoy of the approach of the infuriated londoners the duke being then at his oysters without any further tarrying and also breaking both his shins at a form for haste took boat with the lord percy and by water went to richmond where the princess regent was with richard the young king by her interference the londoners were compelled to humble themselves and to make a great taper of wax with the duke's arms upon it at the charge of the city which was carried in procession and placed in the chapel of our lady in st paul's to burn before the image of the virgin from february to october thirteen seventy seven wycliffe seems to have been occupied in discharging his duties as rector and professor during this interval edward III died the accession of richard the Second was followed by a diminution of the influence of john of gaunt but the opposition to the papal claims was not less decided amongst other subjects the next parliament seriously discussed whether it would not be lawful for the kingdom in case of necessity and as a means of its defence to detain its treasure that it be not conveyed to foreign nations though the pope himself should demand the same under pain of his censures and by virtue of obedience said to be due to him an answer to this question would not now be considered any matter of doubt or difficulty but at the time it was a perplexing subject in fact it involved most important questions both of a civil and a religious nature under this dilemma the opinion of wycliffe was requested in this reply he discarded the opinions and decisions of civilians or other human authorities he considered the proper reference to be to the principles of the law of christ the nature of the pope's demands sufficiently indicate the result of such an appeal the doctrines of wycliffe were now publicly known the ecclesiastics had not remained indifferent to the consequences as affecting their interests and their power a number of his opinions were censured by the pope and in june thirteen seventy seven bulls were issued addressed to the archbishop of canterbury the bishop of london the king and the university of oxford in which the pope required that wycliffe should be seized and imprisoned under the papal authority that his confession should be received distinct information of his tenants obtained and that he should be detained in custody until further instructions were sent concerning him If he were not apprehended, citations were to be issued, commanding his attendance before the Pope within three months. The utmost care was to be taken to prevent the King and the nobility from being defiled with his errors. The bulls, however, were not made public till after the parliamentary proceeding just mentioned. These harsh mandates, it will be observed, treat Wycliffe as a criminal already condemned. The prelates were merely to inform themselves privately whether Wycliffe had taught the doctrines imputed to him. Such was the inquisitorial policy of the romish ecclesiastics. The University of Oxford did not receive this bull without considerable hesitation, though accompanied by an especial letter from the Pope lamenting that tares were suffered to grow among the pure wheat in that seat of learning, and even to grow ripe without any care being applied to root them up. Not the smallest intention of placing Wickliffe in the power of his enemies was manifested by the heads of the university. Archbishop Sudbury, however wrote to the chancellor enjoining him to cite wycliffe to appear before his superiors and early in thirteen seventy eight the reformer attended a synod at lambeth the duke of lancaster no longer retained his political power but the deep impression wycliffe's doctrines had made upon the people was now apparent considerable crowds surrounded the place many forced an entrance openly declaring their attachment to the reformer and sir lewis clifford in the name of the queen-mother forbade the bishops from proceeding to any definitive sentence on this occasion wycliffe delivered a written statement of his opinions which has been unfairly represented as an artful attempt to evade the consequences of his doctrines by apologies and explanations this is not correct many things had been laid to his charge which he knew not some were utterly false while other opinions he had not yet maintained to attempt an explanation of his real views was therefore a proof of ingeniousness rather than of artifice and it is by no means certain that this document has come down to us without mutilation from his enemies. Yet if the whole be attended to, and allowance be made for these scholastic forms of argument, from which Wycliffe had not been emancipated, his statements will not be considered as evasive. These articles are given at length by Lewis from Walsingham, and are fully abstracted by Vaughan. If the reader finds less distinct reference than he expected to the great truths of the Christian faith, he must not be surprised. In controversy, the Romish Church has usually kept these all-important subjects out of sight, or rather they are admitted in form while in effect they are denied. The points controverted with Wycliffe chiefly related to the authority of the Pope and the powers of the priesthood. The doctrine of transubstantiation was the great subject of inquiry in the 16th century few except luther and fox succeeded in bringing their opponents into direct discussion upon a point which in fact was the main subject at issue namely whether salvation was to be obtained only by faith in christ or whether other mediators and means of remission of sin were to be looked for of wycliffe's explanations it will suffice to say that so far from having made decided statements and retracted them by subsequent explanations he repeated in his subsequent treatises the sentiments deemed most obnoxious while he ever professed his readiness to retract if his conclusions were proved to be opposed to the faith the papal authority at this time suffered from other causes in addition to the attacks of the advocates of reformation. On the death of Pope Gregory XI, in March 1378, a schism took place which exhibited the Church of Rome with two, and sometimes with three different heads at the same time, each pretending to infallibility and all denouncing curses against their opponents in most awful terms. To the death of Gregory XI and these distractions, the escape of Wycliffe from the vengeance of the clergy may partly be attributed the general feeling of the necessity for reformation was also promoted and wycliffe was not wanting in exertions to expose the vain and wicked pretensions of these unchristian pretenders to infallibility in a tract entitled on the schism of the popes he made a direct attack upon the papal usurpations amidst these labours and persecutions wycliffe was assailed by sickness while at oxford he was confined to his chamber and reports of his approaching dissolution were circulated the mendicants considered this to be a favorable opportunity for obtaining a recantation of his declarations against them. Perhaps they concluded that the sick-bed of Wycliffe would resemble many others they had witnessed, and that their power would be there felt and acknowledged. A doctor from each of the privileged orders of beggars, attended by some of the civil authorities of the city, entered the chamber of Wycliffe. They at first expressed sympathy for his sufferings with hopes for his recovery, they then suggested that he must be aware of the wrongs the mendicants had experienced from him especially by his sermons and other writings as death now appeared at hand they concluded that he must have feelings of compunction on this account therefore they expressed their hope that he would not conceal his penitence but distinctly recall whatever he had hitherto said against them the suffering reformer listened to this address unmoved When it was concluded, he made signs for his attendants to raise him in his bed, then fixing his eyes on the mendicants, he summoned all his remaining strength, and loudly exclaimed, "'I shall not die, but live, and shall again declare the evil deeds of the friars.' The appalled doctors, with their attendants, hurried from the room, and they speedily found the prediction fulfilled. The scene would afford a striking subject for an able artist." while wycliffe strongly censured the fabulous legends and crafty delusions practised by these orders he by no means neglected the means of usefulness they so much misapplied he was not less distinguished as a preacher than as a theologian or a controversialist milton well speaks of wycliffe's preaching as a saving light at which succeeding reformers effectually lighted their tapers nearly three hundred of his sermons have escaped the destruction to which his writings were subjected the plain simplicity of their language and style show that he was not less fitted for the humble yet important station of a village pastor than for the office of ambassador to the pope or to consider matters of state referred to him by the highest authorities of the land that he was an active preacher is evident and there can be no doubt but that he discharged the other duties of his function according to what he had himself pointed out to be the duty of the christian man to visit those who are sick or who are in trouble especially those whom god hath made needy by age or by other sickness as the feeble the blind and the lame who are in poverty these thou shalt relieve with thy goods after thy power and after their need for thus biddeth the gospel upon the importance of preaching in all ages of the church it is unnecessary to enlarge but certainly it was particularly important in those times when little but oral instruction could be imparted and the invention of printing was unknown wycliffe's sermons are seldom to be considered as essays upon particular subjects frequently they are only sketches or heads of his discourses but they are almost invariably what were then called postiles discourses founded upon passages of scripture the various parts of which are considered in succession this method was most usual both in the primitive church and among the reformers who followed wycliffe in general the discourses are founded upon the gospel the epistle or the lesson for the day and are supposed to have been delivered at during the eight years he was rector of that place they are strictly of a popular character as will be seen by these specimens in the present volume in one of these discourses he speaks of the labours of christ and his apostles as teachers they are touched upon in a manner which shows that he recommended similar proceedings in the times in which he lived and the testimonies of historians inform us that the teachers among the lollards went about in this manner testifying of the things of the kingdom of heaven he says the gospel telleth us the duty which falls to all the disciples of christ and also telleth us how priests both high and low should occupy themselves in the church of god and in serving him and first jesus himself did indeed the lessons which he taught the gospel relates how jesus went about in the places of the country both great and small as in cities and castles or small towns and this to teach us to profit generally unto men and not to forbear to preach to a people because they are few and our name may not in consequence be great for we should labor for god and from him hope for our reward there is no doubt that christ went into small uplandish towns as to bethphage and cana in galilee for christ went to all those places where he wished to do good and he laboured not thus for gain, for he was not smitten either with pride or with covetousness. In another discourse he says, it was ever the manner of Jesus to speak the words of God, wherever he knew that they would be profitable to others who heard them. And hence Christ often preached, now at meat, and now at supper, and indeed at whatever time it was convenient for others to hear him. End of Some Account of the Life of John Wycliffe, D.D. Part 1